Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Backroom Politics. Hey, good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live from the National Capital Region in Washington, D.C., and our individual studios located up in New York City. Joining us from New York City, speaking of which, she joins us every Tuesday. She is the former attorney for then-presidential candidate Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton, and she was the attorney there in Ohio. She is the person that we know as Sharmila Achari. Hello, Sharmila. Hi, Justin. Greetings from a very sunny New York. And greetings to you. And also joining us from the northern Virginia part of the National Capital Region, he is a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is retired Admiral Rear Admiral Ken Caradine. Admiral, how are you? Fine, Justin. Happy belated Memorial Day. Uh, belated Memorial Day thoughts to you as well, sir. And uh, joining us also from the northern Virginia areas of the National Capital Region, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce that served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, a man we know as Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Hey, gang. And also joining us is the former Joe Biden, Democratic political operative, who is also a bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is a man that we know as Daniel Lipner Esquire. Daniel, hello. How's it going, Justin? And just so you know, my ZTE cell phone just suddenly started flashing. Trump is great. Trump is great. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> and he starts off with a bang. Yay. Also joining us, as she always does, is our associate producer from an undisclosed location in Cape Cod is Audrey Howerton, and she keeps things intact and online for us. But let's get started. we got a lot to talk about. Uh, let's start off talking about world trade. Let's talk about tariffs. In case you missed it, this morning around 10 a.m., the White House announced that there's going to be $50 billion worth of tariffs placed on China which has re-signaled a possible trade war, which has been off again, on again, depending on which tweet you look at and who you talk to in the administration and who you talk to in Beijing. Uh, China has also come back and said that they will, in fact, retaliate with $50 billion of their own, basically targeting uh, the agricultural and chemical industry, which is a big hit for American trade going overseas to that part of the world. Um, the, the White House argument says that there are numerous investigations that Beijing continues to deal in intellectual property theft, uh, flooding the market with government-subsidized products such as steel, 
Uh, it is just not a good situation. However, last week we had been told that this is kind of going to be on hold, according to numerous statements coming out of the White House and out of the Chinese Premier's office. That seems to have gone bad very quickly. Uh, Alan, as former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, let me start with you. Um, what we thought was going to be something settled, it looked like it could be a win for the White House, has drastically gone south very quickly. Where was the flip-flop on this? What was the turning point that caused everybody to just walk away from the table and just give the big middle finger? The flip-flop on this is exactly where it has been on countless other issues, right in the Oval Office, where the president, presumably on a whim or uh, according to the last person he talked to, is somehow convinced that this is a useful gesture or useful exercise, which, that once flipped, can be flopped tomorrow or the day after or the day after that. Let me make one, one clarification about the way you described it. You talked about $50 billion worth of tariffs. The way these are being talked about is $50 billion worth of imports against which a tariff of 25% would be imposed. So if, if the products targeted were uh, the, 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 number of, the number of imports targeted did not change, that is, was $50 billion worth of sales, then 25% of that would be $12.5 billion of tariffs. Um, so that, that's what's being discussed. Now, of course, once you raise the price of a particular product by 25%, usually it affects the, uh, the demand for that product, especially if there are substitute products. So a 50, you know, if you were going to impose a tariff of 25% on $50 billion worth of product, We'd buy the the U.S. importers would buy less than fifty fifty billion. They'd buy forty billion or thirty billion. So I just I just mentioned that uh, yeah. to, no, to, to clarify. This is not the way to do business in the international realm. Um, it, it's very much President Trump's way of doing business. Threaten something, then pull it back. Send a different message, and then jump in there again, saying. It's time now. It's time. And on June 15th, we're going to issue the, the, the final list. And on June 30th, we're going to start imposing and, and, and collecting these tariffs. But I, I, I would be willing to bet that we will not start collecting tariffs on $50 billion of imports uh, starting on, uh, on June 30th. Uh, uh, we, we flip and flop so often now on this and so many other issues that – the, 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 that the U.S. and, for that matter, the president's credibility um, is, is being damaged. It is, having said that, imagine that you're a business person and you know that uh, a, a major product that you import that's crucial to your success, either in manufacturing or in retail, is on this list. You're fit to be tied. What do I do? Where, where's, what's an alternative? Right. Uh, how do right. I deal with this? And then a week later you'll hear, never mind. We do that in talks of, of these, these tariffs. We do that in terms of summits on, on, uh, uh, with, with North Korea. So this flipping and flopping, we're getting used right. to. The problem is we tend to be more and more dismissive of how 
firm and final any given announcement is, and that's not a good thing. Right. Sharmore, let me go to you. I mean, again, this comes on the heels that Steve Mnuchin had announced a great hold on this trade war, and it almost seems like everybody at Commerce, Treasury, and the White House were doing a victory lap that they had avoided this mass uh, trade war disaster. Uh, This also comes on the heels of the fact that you know, there's uh, reports coming out of Beijing that Ivanka Trump has gotten several uh, trademark and patents issued to her and her organization. Is this a throw-off-the-scent move and capitalizing on the short attention span of the public? Or, I mean, something just doesn't make sense here, Charmaine. Well, I think it's... I think it would be uh, ascribing nefarious intent to say that this is some sort of, you know, distraction move to distract from the Ivanka Trump trademark uh, trademark issue. From what I've been reading, it seems that, you know, it seems that the Ivanka Trump trademarks could have potentially been issued in the normal course of business, considering she applied for some of them well over a year ago. And, you know, that it takes about 18 months for trademark applications to be processed in the Chinese system. So I don't know that there's necessarily anything um, nefarious or, you know, cor- inherently corrupt in, in Ivanka Trump being granted these trademarks. But, you know, I agree with Alan. I, I agree that, you know, this this move seems incredibly poorly thought out if anything else. And I think, you know, worst case scenario, a, uh, another example in this administration, how the left hand is not talking to the right hand, you know, on one hand, the treasury secretary is talking about, you know, having avoided a trade war and trying to delay these tariffs. And on the other hand, the president is announcing them seemingly without any coordination with the rest of his government. So I think that, you know, in this scenario, as in so many scenarios we've seen in the past, you just, this, there's this sense of, of non-coordination and disorganization that emanates from the White House that I think does not build consumer confidence. Admiral Ken, it it does not make sense from just a a credibility standpoint. You know, at some point, China's going to call our bluff and say, you know what, we're tired of this merry-go-round. You guys want to impose tariffs, don't impose tariffs. We don't care. You know what, we're going to impose tariffs. And, oh, by the way, everybody's going to come to us as a result. This does not seem like there is a lot of adult supervision going on in not only the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, but even the negotiations going on with with the trade issues coming out of the the trade office. Well, I I think Sharmila hit the nail on the head in that – Not only does there not seem to be any coordination, there isn't. And you know, and everybody, you know, a lot of the talking heads like to talk about this being the age of Trump, and that we're the country's doing things or the government's doing things that uh, it never did before or is doing things differently. Well, when you stop and you think about the organization that Trump ran and gained his quote experience unquote uh, in. He could basically turn on a dime like that. The organization was structured to do that, um, and in, in a lot of ways, you know, to to uh, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we're 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 in that situation now where he's trying still to run the country the same way that he run he he, he ran his business, and it it won't work. Anyone 
anyone who has spent any time in federal government would be the first to tell you that there might be some things that you could take from the business world and do, but you certainly can't run the federal government like a business. It's just not designed to do that. And if you go back and just you know start with the reading of the Constitution, everything else after that just layers layers on that thought. Um, I think secondarily, um, um, there's just not a lot of discussion as to what these little edicts with regard to layer, uh, uh, leveling tax, uh, tariffs on countries is doing to the stock portfolio. Trump administration likes to brag about how the economy is booming. You know, he even did it on Memorial Day when he should be focused on other things, talking about how great the economy is. And um, but when you when you put out these little these little uh, tweets or whatever, these make these statements. Um, what it does is it, it impacts the, the growth of the stock market, and if whether you've got a straight up stock or 401ks, uh, a great number of Americans are impacted. And finally, on this thing with Ivanka Trump, I agree with Sharmila that probably nothing nefarious is going on there. You know, uh, these, these things, near, you know, based on my limited understanding, it, it takes time for them to wash through. Lord knows my my global entry application is is taking its sweet time getting, getting processed. <laughs> Um, but I will say the issue of her you know, receiving proceeds from her private company while she's receiving a government salary is not appropriate. It's not right, and it's not something that we've ever you know, turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to uh, before the Trump administration. And I think, again, I, I am, I am uh, once again amazed at the lack of moral courage on the part of members of Congress to step up and, 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 uh, and say, hey, guys, look, come on. Either you're in the government or you're not, but you can't do both. Right. And Dan Littner, you know, going off of what Admiral Ken was saying, you know, we look at the numbers today. Dow Jones is down almost 400 points. Uh, the S&P 500 was down uh, 31. NASDAQ down 37. You know, for somebody who's talking that they've got a good grasp, on the economy and economic issues, two questions to you. One, obviously the president's tone deaf because, you know, whenever you start talking trade war, Wall Street reacts poorly to that. And the other thing I have for you is if, if we're going to take this with China, an adversary, you know, a, a, a perceived adversary in the global economic space, how – how are our allies going to deal with that? Namely, you know, the people we're still supposed to talk to, Korea, Germany, Italy, people who send us everything from olive oil to fancy sports cars. How are they going to deal with that? Are they going to take us seriously at the trade table? Well, it's less an issue of them taking it seriously and more an issue of them trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And as the it makes it really difficult to plan because so all of our partners, whether or not they're in Europe or Asia or any place else on the planet, if things can get overturned depending on the president's mood or what he had for breakfast or what he has before breakfast, it makes things really challenging for business. Regarding the stock market, we can play that game all we want, but I would prefer to look more toward the main side of things, and one of the companies that Donald Trump out of his way to campaign at campaign for. Uh, how does the uh, world announces that 
Closing, closing Dan's three. breaking up. Dan's breaking up on us, and we can't. I'm, I, not, I, I'm missing I, two I, words. I hear that. I'm about to. Uh, Alan, I'll, I'll, I'm addressing that. Go, Dan. Try it one more time. Oh, so by the latter point was the the Main Street question. How do those workers at Harley feel the, with the president taking all of these actions and changing moods when those jobs at Harley that he campaigned at are going away? Yeah. Dan, we've we got a bad connection on you. I've got to put you on hold. Hopefully that will clear back up real quick. Um, Alan Moore, you know, Dan brings up a good point. I mean, you're talking about imposing uh, tariffs on products like, you know, he's, they've mentioned Harley as a target, but even just on the agricultural side, when you start talking about soybeans, corn, wheat, uh, any of the you know pork bellies, et cetera, that hits mainstream middle America. That's Trump country. Is Trump that tone deaf that he doesn't understand that this you know back and forth trade war ultimately is going to hit the pockets of the people that put him into office? Well, here here's <laughs> there there are a couple of fundamental problems here. There there are some problems in U.S. trade relationships with China. And other parts of the world. Unfortunately, the president doesn't understand what is a problem and what isn't. He tends to re- reduce to the absurd the notion that if we have a deficit, a, uh, what's called a current account deficit in trade of goods and services with a particular country, then they're somehow ta- making taking advantage of us, um, which is simply not how economics works, not how trade works. But it's a simple-minded way to look at it. Unfortunately, I think he actually believes some of that. He looks at these numbers with China and assumes that just by imposing some tariffs or talking loud um, and throwing threats around is going to somehow fix things. The problems with China, in my judgment, and that of many others, is, is not these numbers per se, but some deals that that American and other European countries, uh, companies, have struck with China in order to gain access to their market. Basically, think about it this way. Boeing and Airbus are the two big commercial airline manufacturers of the world. They both want to sell their airplanes to the Chinese. The Chinese want to buy a lot of them, hundreds of them, and they want to say, okay, let's talk. Who, who will give us China the best deal? We want to build some of this stuff in China and we want to know how you build. We want to see your special techniques for some of the stuff you build. And our th- these companies, Boeing and, and Airbus, then go in, try to compete, and they, they compete of, in a way where they're actually giving trade secrets away. And, and years down the road later, we say, oh, damn, why did we do that? Uh, we've given them this stuff, and now they're beginning to – uh, take some of that knowledge and utilize it in third markets. Um, yeah, but, these are the kinds but, of Alan, things on, that we just, need to wrestle with in the world of international trade. Right, but Alan, let me just jump on real quick because you bring up you know, a, a very interesting market space, and that's the aerospace. You know, For the past 10 years, Boeing, for lack of a better term, has been kicking Airbus's rear end in the pan asia market as far as aircraft sales you look at the big you look at the big buyers of aircraft 
you look at Air China, you look at any of the Chinese-based aircraft or airlines, particularly the commercial airlines, they're buying Boeing products. And yet it seems like they're ready to just go to the table and just rip that away from Boeing. And those are people, again, that put Donald Trump into office. Where's the tone death happen? No, it's not. It, it, Justin, you keep using this word tone deaf. I mean, even when you said it, the, the, the market went down 400 points today, the president's tone deaf. Now, hopefully the president doesn't worry day to day what the market is going to do. However, having said that, the market today was reacting to this new announcement with regard to, to tariffs, not, not because some, poss- some kind of trade response to Chinese bad behavior isn't appropriate, but because we don't know what the overall strategy is. We don't have a sense there's a group of people in our government who are looking broadly across the board and in consultation with allies to figure out what to do. We're jumping from this side to that side, back again to this side, and the markets get jittery uh, with, with regard to that. Um, the, the president doesn't seem to mind. He seems to think, and he, he, to some extent, he has been right, that there's a temporary response of concern or fear, and then things will kind of settle back, and they'll realize, okay, it's not quite as crazy as we thought. We keep thinking he's going to change and be more like what we expect uh, and arguably hope for from our leaders, but he's kind of muddling through, and every now and then he'll make some kind of minor, have some kind of minor victory, or the horrible thing that we think is going to happen doesn't happen. But what what, what Alan just described is basically day trading. He's, this is day trading foreign policy. This is day trading uh, trade international style. We can't afford to have a day trader calling the shots and going back and forth. At what point do we lose credibility and we're no longer in the driver's seat? Well, I think you're right, Justin. I think that characterization is somewhat apt because, as Alan pointed out, President Trump is all about the short-term victories, right? Whether or not he truly understands and anticipates the consequences of a trade war with China, of, you know, of imposing these tariffs is unclear. And, you know, the, the pessimist in me thinks that he truly doesn't, but he sees it as a political win. He sees it as a signal to his supporters that, look, I said I was going to get tough on China and look, I'm getting tough on China. So don't, you know, don't accuse me of not fulfilling my promises. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think that the, you know, his flip-flopping on, you know, on China, on, you know, on imposing tariffs on one hand, whereas, you know, pledging to save ZTE on the other hand, or even his flip-flops on North Korea, you know, heralding this, you know, historic summit, canceling it five minutes later, now saying, oh, well, but it's still, I canceled it, but it's still definitely going to happen, right? I think you're, you're hit the nail on the head that these, you know, this, this, this almost deliberately undeliberate manner in which he's conducting you know, world politics is incredibly destructive for the U.S.'s credibility. And I think that you're going to see that our allies are start 
are going to start turning more and more to each other and looping and, you know, keeping the U.S. out of the loop. Admiral Ken, this has got to make the folks at the Pentagon absolutely crazy at a time when we're trying to get some sort of foothold in the South China Sea, and China seems to be building a brand-new archipelago of bases every other week. Uh, How are we going to be able to keep a foothold in the South China Sea and have any credibility from a defense posture when all this is going on just on trade? Well, so I, I think that you, you answered your own question in that um, there, there's typically a national defense strategy that ties together all the arms of government, diplomatic, um, uh, international. Um, I mean, it, it all ties, ties. There hasn't been a strategy that's come out of this White House at all. And so the fact that you've got commerce and trade stirring up the, the muck. Um, where you know when you've got you know uh, the the, Na- the navy and, and uh, other maritime and air air services kind of watching what's going on in the South China Sea, scratching their head, trying to figure out, okay, so when when is the first engagement going to happen? It's not a question of if it's going to happen; it's going to be when. And I remind everyone on the call about the P three. Uh, aircraft that got forced down in the, uh, in in over China some number of years ago. We're going to see other incidents like that, and and unless and until we've got some idea of of how to basically make all of this work together, uh, I don't think the folks in the Pentagon are going to be uh, sleeping too well at night. Dan Lipner, is is this is this something that should give our allies, the ones that we do a lot of trade with, and even the ones that we don't necessarily do a lot of trade with, is this is this something that should give them pause and maybe turn inside, maybe give a lot more credibility to the EU as opposed to turning to the U.S. as being uh, you know the great player? I think the same 13% of Americans that consider the president trustworthy should be represented in the 13% of the rest of the world that considers this president trustworthy. And unfortunately, however, that rubs off in the United States as a whole at the moment, I suspect is how it'll be played. Alan Ward, does this give the EU almost a stronger foothold in the geopolitical side? Here's the thing. You know, a year ago, uh, even even more, we we began watching as this president started doing things in a very different way. And uh, not consulting with allies, taking unilateral action, dropping out of Paris uh, uh, climate treaty, taking a, a, a very aggressive uh, tone towards uh, towards Iran, for example, um, and and uh, this was before he got really ugly with uh, the North Koreans, before they became his best friends, before he was mad at them again, and before he then became our friends again, all within a four-day period. Um, the, the, and a year ago, we were having this conversation about what the Allies are thinking. And, and gee, maybe Angela Merkel has now got to be the, uh, the adult, uh, in, in the, adult leader in the West. And then she ran into her political problems. And then Macron was, was elected in France. And Brit- Britain, of course, is pulled out of the EU. 
there is weakness all around and political change all around that is, uh, you know, of a piece in part with the, the, the change going on in America. Um, now, that doesn't mean they're all getting Trumps because there's a, there's a, the, the, there, are, there are reasonable intellectual arguments for political change, which doesn't mean you need someone who is a narcissist and an ignorant person who doesn't care about facts and who is all about manipulation like we have with Donald Trump. But there are, but, but there are variations of sort of this national populism that are, that are popping up all around. What's happening in, with our allies is, you know, they were, they were horrified at what America was doing, and, and they rely so heavily on American leadership. And then they were horrified at what was going on in their own home politics. And then they began getting kind of used to Trump. And he says he's going to do one thing, and that's absolutely horrifying. And then he says, yeah, maybe not. And then he pulls back. Or then later, he moves forward. He, his, his word is like quicksand. It moves constantly. And we're adjusting here in America to that. So are our allies uh, for whom the U.S., U.S. activity economically, U.S. activity politically, U.S. activity, activity in terms of, uh, of, of defense, defense deployment, foreign policy, um, they're learning to adjust too. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's a healthy thing overall. But, hey, we're all kind of getting used to the new normal of America, which is crazy stuff, um, uh, ugly stuff uh, that then shifts constantly. I, I, I think it's dangerous, but, I, but I'm not seeing that suddenly the EU is, is saying, oh, man, we can't rely on America. They can't that, get along with us. Here's, Alan, here's the problem with this is the, the one group that we would kind of think would kind of take the reins and run with it, that being, you know, an alliance of Germany, England, France, they can't because the EU's got their own problems with Italy now talking about pulling out. They've got their own issues. They can't even form a government, let alone stay in the EU full time. The people that are winning are the people we don't want to win, and that's China and Russia. They seem to be the ones that have the most to win out of us continuing to shoot ourselves in the foot. That's my opinion. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, um, in case you haven't noticed, I do not have my Grande Caramel Macchiato extra caramel today because Starbucks is, in fact, closed. And there's a reason why they're closed. We're going to talk about that and, and a couple of other social issues that have popped up today. This is Backroom Politics live from the National Capital Region in Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is backroom politics on Blog Talk Radio, live from Washington, D.C. Joining me on the line as they do every Tuesday, Rear Admiral Ken Carradine, Sharma Achari, Alan Moore, and Dan Littner, Esquire. Hey, let's talk a little bit about what's going on over at Starbucks and a couple of other issues that have popped up around that. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, Starbucks. Um, in case you don't remember, back in April, uh, two black men were arrested at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. The manager of the store called cops after the two men declined to make a purchase, explaining that they were waiting for a couple of business associates. Uh, they were instructed that they were had to leave if they were not purchasing anything. The in, the uh, cops were called. Cops arrested them issued a trespass warning, uh, and obviously this sparked all kinds of protests and reached all the way out to Starbucks headquarters in uh, in Seattle, Washington. Uh, several, uh, several very big, prominent organizations came out and attacked Starbucks. Uh, the, the head of a Think tank called Demos, which is a kind of a uh, kind of a left-leaning type, socially active think tank. Uh, they said, "quote unquote, this isn't just a Starbucks problem. This is an American problem, and we won't rubber stamp. We won't give a rubber stamp that gives an all clear on bias in all stores and locations." Uh, it, it, the train is supposed to take place. Uh, in April, but the big shutdown happened this afternoon where they're training all 175,000 employees. Uh, the video training, which will be given to all Starbucks employees, uh, does include some very big folks, including uh, CEO and co-founder Howard Schultz, uh, Chief Executive Kevin Johnson, uh, the rapper Common is also in that, as well as... Uh, various other socially active leaders in uh in in the in, in the uh, anti bias into the pro civil rights movement throughout the country. Um so let me start with you. Starbucks actually has been kind of uh criticized ironically for taking this Type of a big sweeping action is the criticism fair that to the public that this may come across as just uh, a marketing ploy, a uh, almost like a, a stunt to get people to think, well, we're no longer biased. Is it, is is what they're doing effective? Well, I think you could look at it two ways. Uh, I think there is validity to the criticism that you know. A half a day of seminar, you know, listening to seminars and, you know, watching videos is not going to solve the problem of systemic racism, right? I, I don't think that anyone imagines that that's going to be so. On the other hand, I think you can look at it and say, look, if a corporation like Starbucks is willing to suspend their revenue-making opportunities for half a day, if they're willing to say that, look, the the question of addressing racism and why we carry these implicit biases with us and why we act a certain way um, 
if we think that resolving those issues or at least really talking about those issues and digging deep into them is more important than making money, I think that that's a pretty powerful statement for a company to say, look, our our corporate culture values, um, you know, social justice, and we don't think of it as our job just to make money. We think of it, we think of part of our job is to make you know, our society and our community a better place to live. That's powerful. Whether or not it's actually impactful is a different story. But I think, again, you know, obviously part of this is marketing, part of this is PR and spin. You know, they want to show that they're doing everything possible. Also, you know, as Starbucks is expanding into lower-income communities and gentrifying communities, they want to have the support of those communities, and this is a good way to get that. So, Obviously, there's there's some self-interest here, but I think that you can also look at this as, as a positive step in the right direction. Whether or not it's going to accomplish anything remains to be seen. You know, Admiral Ken, one of the messages that's being delivered today to Starbucks employees by uh, Howard Schultz, the co-founder, appears to be that they want to be inclusive, is, is this message of inclusivity, they want to be and this is a quote from Starbucks, quote-unquote, the third place, or the idea that Starbucks provides a, a third location where people can gather between home and work. It, it, does, does that sentiment out there, I mean, because if they want to be the third place, I mean, even if half the people just go and hang out between home and work and buy coffee, they're making money. Should we take this as a legitimate way to really expand the discussion on bias or is this a, is this a money making ploy to make all things good with Starbucks and we might even make a couple of bucks well i i you know i i i flinch at the um at the either or option that you've put in front of me and so i i i will i will try and settle someplace here in the middle so what I mean by that, Starbucks is a business. Uh, it's arguably one of the most successful businesses uh, I have seen in in in, in my lifetime. Uh, I am a I am a Starbucks customer. Uh, I continued to be a Starbucks customer throughout um, the, uh, the this period between when the arrest happened and up until today's. Uh, um, I, I call it a sensitivity stand down. And I, I call it that because if this were happening in the Navy, that's what we call it. Uh, um, and I will, and I will, and I will, con- and I will continue to be a, a Starbucks customer um, until I see that um, that the that the that the second thing that needs to take place today uh, is not taking place. And, and what do I mean by that? So we are we are in, in this country. We are we are well past a uh, a racial kumbaya moment. I mean, everybody, uh, everybody understands, uh, even racists, I believe, understand that it is not, um, it, it's not cool to, to, to say and act uh, on things. I think where the problem uh, starts to arise is people say and do things that they don't believe uh, comes from any kind of a, a conscious racial bias. And, and people like me, black people like me, you know, sometimes we're maybe a little more sensitive than we are at other times, and it, it, it comes across as you know as something that's that's untoward. So the second thing that needs to happen is so Starbucks is going to take going to take half a day and and and, and do this sensitivity stand down. 
So the real question is, when this happens again, and you know there's going to be people that are going to come out here and test them on this. I'm not going to be one of them, but it's going to happen. <laughs> when they get tested on this again, what will Starbucks do? Well, they, the same person who was the managing the, the manager at that Starbucks in Philadelphia get tested again, and will she once again, as she previous before this became a national event, call the cops, or will this person basically realize that you know what? Everybody, just everybody that I know of that's ever done any business at Starbucks has shown up a few minutes early before their friends got there to order a coffee, and no big deal happened. And so the real question is, is there going to be any teeth on the back end of what Starbucks, Starbucks is doing today? You know, Ed McKenna, hold on, hold on. Let me just ask you a question real quick. I want to get some perspective on this. Sure. After, after this happened in April, yeah. have you bought coffee at Starbucks? Absolutely. Okay. Let me ask this question, and, and I know this is going to sound like a silly question, but I have to ask the reason why. The coffee's good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And, and, and you know, and, and, and so here, so here's what's really funny. So when this when this event happened, uh, I happened to be out in Texas at my old uh, my old cigar haunt that was around the corner from my old house out there, and I was in the company of you know of of several other several other um, uh, patrons of at the event. Um, half of which are, are, are other black men, and the other half were were not. And we all came. We all pretty much said the same thing: that yeah, this was BS. That the woman called called the uh, called the cops. But at the end of the day, I, I I made the comment. You know, if I'd been there, just when I saw the the, the situation escalating, I would have bought him a cup of coffee, just to basically shut that woman up. But the issue is, the issue is, I shouldn't have had this. Uh, to, to step up like that, nor should those men have been put in that position. And so the question then now becomes, you know, again, will Starbucks follow through on this good faith effort, what I believe to be a good faith effort, to basically show their employees that, you know what, just because you don't think that you're doing something, don't think that you're not, because you might be. And I realize it's a very, very slippery slope. It's a, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to 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 uh to do, but quite frankly, the answer to the quick the answer to the question and the way to resolve it is just treat everybody the same. When somebody walks into your store or your event and they happen to be of a different color or a different gender, treat them the same way you would treat anybody else. It doesn't matter. Dan Lipner, is is what Starbucks doing giving new setting a new example for? Uh, corporate social justice, or is this being viewed as a Starbucks is covering their rear rent? I think Starbucks taking this action has solved all racial issues in this country from here going forward. They should be commended for it, and we will likely never have to discuss a racial issue on the show Ever again. So okay, any any other any, any any other day that, any that other being, day, that being said in any again uh, uh, any any other day I probably would laugh except except that um, you know I had an event happen to me outside of our old home place at Shelley's back room a couple of weeks back and then we had Roseanne Barr 
making the comments that she made about Valerie Jarrett uh, today. And, and, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, um, and, and I, I, am, I, am, I don't think I'm alone uh, on this show or in, in my social circles in feeling this way. The fact of the matter is the, the president of the United States' rhetoric uh, in the last year and a half has emboldened people who feel a certain way that they can just come out and, and insult and, and do whatever the hell they want to do. And it, it has basically – not, not only has he, has, he, has he emboldened these people – um, he is basically using the, the, his, his divisiveness to, to embolden and, 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 uh, and, and cement his, his, uh, his place in, in, the, in the presidency. This, this is a problem that, um, that quite frankly, I, until I, I got into my 40s, I thought we'd fix this. I really did. I, I, I honestly uh, naively believe that you know, this is, the, the, the country was getting better, but in the last year or so, you know, um, since since President Trump has come into office, you know, it has been my impression, um, and I'm not an overly sensitive person. You pretty much have to shoot at me to get a rise out of me. Um, it, it is it, the situation is not getting better; it's getting worse. And I think that that the the situation at Starbucks and the other two events that I that I talked about uh, are 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 evidence of that. And I think there's probably more people that can that can talk more of it. Well, Dan Littner first, then Sharmila. So, yes, while Dan, I was packing a joke, I actually had not known about the Roseanne Barr tweet until just now, and I just looked it up, and oh, my God. Um, uh, and, for record, for record, Dan, and, Dan, for the record, I do want to clarify that ABC Entertainment has since – canceled all production and has canceled uh any further episodes of R- the Roseanne show reboot it has effectively been taken off the schedule for all intents and purposes but go on Dan no no and and that's actually to the other point um the that's some pretty swift response especially how successful that show started off um or the the reboot started off so i mean for all of the horrors that this president has helped, uh, I don't want to say unleashed, because that's incorrect. However, this president has helped those folks feel more comfortable putting their ugliness front and center. Um, there is the flip side of this, not the least of which was ABC canceling a profitable show uh, and not doing a song and dance uh, number saying, well, you know, what we try and do our sensitivity Whatever the typical BS is, this is a pretty strong response to a a I don't know what to call this tweet. I'm sure as hell not reading it. Um, uh, reading it on the air, I'll leave that to somebody else. Uh, the yeah, I mean, this is this is problematic to say the least. However, it should be no, no, noted that we people are responding. And they are taking it seriously, and the and the and the Starbucks action. While yes, uh, Sharmila is correct that it's not going to solve everything. If that is every corporation's response to everything, any time there is an issue, yeah, that will actually start to make changes. If for no other reason than the almighty dollar saying. If this is what we got to do when there's a problem, this is going to cost us money. Stop 
doing it. So, yeah, there there is a certain balance there. And I, I hope and, this, that that theme continues. And once 45 is out of office, replaced by 46, maybe the, the, the other ugly folks, their numbers would dwindle once they're forced back in the closet. Yeah. And by the way, just for the record, I I am going to I am going to read it just so. Uh, right. Before, we, before we go to Roseanne, are we done with Starbucks? I haven't had a chance to not, say anything. Not yet. Not yet. I want to tie. I want to tie them in together, Alan. Hold on, but I, I do want to read the tweet just because it was brought up, and I, I want everybody to understand. Uh, yesterday, uh, at about 11:45 p.m., uh, Roseanne Barr sent out a tweet, and it said, and I quote. Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ, VJ being the initials of Valerie Jarrett, uh, the uh, former advisor to President Barack Obama, who has been critical of Roseanne Barr and Donald Trump. Um, but So I wanted to get that just for perspective. Um, Sharmila, you had a comment, and then I want to go to Alan Moore. Sharmila, you first. <laughs> Well, I wanted to respond to what uh, Ken had said that, you know, he's afraid that the racial division and the racial um, problems in this country are, are getting worse rather than better. And I think that, you know, one argument I would make sort of, you know, um, in contradiction is to say that for all the bad that comes from these, um, from sort of these the publication of incidents like this, I think that there is an equal good that comes out and that people are speaking out about them, right? Previously, there was, there was a lot of racial injustice in this country, and people felt they had to suffer in silence. Now people are speaking out, right? People, you know, the, the woman at Yale who was, you know, had the police called on her for napping in the dorm room, the women on the golf course who were, had the police called on them. The, you know, there was a couple, I believe, in San Francisco or in California somewhere who rented an Airbnb and had the police called on them. When you when you just take the fact that these incidents are being reported and publicized, yes, it seems like you know racial tension and racial division in this country is much worse. But I think it actually speaks. It says something about our society that people are now empowered to speak out about you know when injustices like this happen to them, and that they're being redressed and remedied. Um, you know, and, and there's certainly a parallel here to the Me Too movement that I know we're going to discuss later in the show. But I think that. You know, for for all the hatefulness that you know this president and members of his circle and his administration have spewed, there has been this sort of opposite reaction of people calling out injustice when they see it, and society and you know um, both commercial society and civil society taking action, standing up and standing up and saying this isn't right and we're not going to let it continue. Alan Moore. Yeah, so I, I'm I, I'm intrigued both with Sharmila and and with Ken's uh, comments. So far be it from me, um, an old white guy, to to question um, Ken's assessment of what is and is not going on in the country when it comes to race and racism. I want to believe that Sharmila is right. I tend to to think that that she's right in that that at least in part in that that uh, that. Now things that are happening in the society, some of which are unleashed by this president without any question, uh, some of which people bury because, oh, I can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. Oh, my God, with this president, I can say exactly what I want. All the truly ugly, racist, disgusting, um, horrible things. I'm just going to let them out because our president does, so why shouldn't I? How, how pathetic and, 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 and gross is that? And I think that's definitely going on here. Having said that, 
when it comes out and, and, and Ken is thinking, damn it. Cause I think Ken is thinking, I didn't know this, but the people still have this stuff buried, but I guess they do, but not everybody. I think there's a, there's a generational change. I think younger people, I hope tend not to, they weren't raised this way, but a lot of the older folks who were told you can't say this, you can't say that. And they resented it. And then they said, okay, you can do it. Um, they're out um, more uh, more visible. And then as Sharmila says, but they're called on it. And they're called on it publicly. They're shamed. In my view, what, what, what Starbucks did was damage control, one. Like, we've got to show we care and we disagree. So how do we do that? How about something big and dramatic? Let's shut every store in the country for a few hours. And, and, and at least people will know we cared enough to try and to, to call attention to this. And we think God knows, because there have to be incidents we will never hear of that Starbucks management knows about that says, you know, we're past due for our own sake and for the sake of our employees. This is not going to bring them a lot of business, but what this might do is keep them from losing business that had they done nothing and said, Oh yeah, sorry, really sorry. Um, uh, uh, you know, you could have had boycotts and so on, and this will hopefully uh, control uh, the, the, the potential damage. Um, now, I, I'm also intrigued when Ken says, yeah, I go to Starbucks. My, Ken has not had this experience. This happened in one store in Philadelphia, one idiot manager. The, the source of the problem, as I read it, was some, some guys wanted to use the bathroom. Now, we've all, we're all familiar with Starbucks rule. You don't buy, you don't get to use the bathroom. Some of us have been able to sort of beg our way or say, just can I give you a dollar and use your bathroom? Um, and it's a lot easier for white people to be able to get access without buying something than it is for people of color. No denying that. They're homeless and have got all their belongings in the shopping cart. Um, they may come into Starbucks. We see them in McDonald's. They come into stores. All these national stores are trying to struggle with this question. Do are we a public restroom or not? And, and we've all had experience, beach towns and so on, where it's like no public restroom here um, uh, because they don't want to have to deal with that. And Starbucks is now saying, you can use our bathroom. And, and we'll see what the aftermath of that is because some of the Starbucks employees are concerned that, they're, that, that, that suddenly they're going to be hangout places uh, for homeless people. I don't know. I I commend Starbucks for trying to control the damage and for for teaching its people, modifying some policies, but we haven't heard the end of it. All right, but but Alan Moore, and and actually to the table, I want to start with you, and then I want to go to uh, Ken afterwards, but are we not enabling, uh, you know, we look at this one isolated incident in Philadelphia, and we saw Starbucks literally change and shut down an entire national or international operation to give the perception that this is a a fix for us. Um, you know, are, are are we enabling are we enabling possible misuse of the power that's happened as a result of this shutdown and training session? Well, whose power what, are you talking in, about? Yeah, in what way? 
Well, for example, I mean, you know, are we going to see? Uh, are we going to see? You know, we need, are we going to see Waffle House shut down? Uh, you know, I go back to the uh, the Cracker Barrel incidents where uh, there were issues of racism there. Uh, they changed their diversity policy. They did it, but they didn't make a spectacle. They didn't shut down the entire operation. Are we making corporate America, uh, are we putting them in a bad position as such as a result of their yeah, training? You know, there's just, a, there's 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 I don't yeah. think we know. Let's see what happens with the Starbucks experience, and then we'll have a sense. Did that work for them? Did it quiet things down? Is this policy an improvement, or did it create new problems? I don't know. I don't think yeah. any of us know. Nothing was and Sean, Justin, nothing ahead. was forced here. Nothing was forced here. This was a corporate decision, right? This is the free market working as it will. As as you know, I'm sure Alan would agree with. This is right, if if Starbucks wants you know, wants to create this policy and be a market leader, then yeah, potentially other firms might follow their example because they feel that, you know, it would be uncompetitive not to, or maybe this will all blow over. But I don't think there's any element of sort of coercion or being forced here. I don't think the the public wasn't especially clamoring for Starbucks to shut down for a day. And if it was, then then companies would take heed of that because that's a market demand. Fair enough. Fair enough. We're going to let that be the last word. Oh, well, uh, uh, Justin, Justin, if yeah, I may, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Please. Um, so, I, I, Alan, Sharmila, Dan, Justin, I love you. You guys know that. Uh, I, I know where your hearts are. Uh, we, we've, we've had some amazing discussions and experiences together, and, and I know where your hearts are, and I think, quite frankly, um, because your hearts are in the places that they, that, that they are, I think that we and we and we tend to be positive people that that it's it's difficult for us to see some of the things that are going on around us. Um, I wrote an article uh, after an event happened to me in front of Shelley's uh, about two or three weeks ago uh, that took me by surprise. Uh, you know, if you haven't taken a look at it, folks on the air, please do. And and, and Alan, with regard to the the, the comment that you made. Um, about the, the, the mindset of, of, of younger people versus older folks. Um, I, I, after I wrote the article, my daughter took a look at it, and she recommended that I take a look at a show. haven't done it yet, but it's called Dear White People. And the, the show is geared toward younger folks who basically bring the biases that they've learned growing up in their homes in high school and junior high school to the college environment. It's alive. It's well. It's doing well. It's, it's flourishing. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I, I thought by the time I got to be, you know, my, my, I turned 59 a few weeks ago. By the time I got to this age, I thought this would not be an issue. And I'm just dumbfounded that it is. But don't be, don't be, don't be fooled that it's getting better because even with the ability, even with the ability to call things out, I still say it's not something that you should have to call out. That's is it, it, is right, it getting enough. better is, I guess, the question. No. Is it? It's not. No, that's really the question. No, right, and and we're gonna yeah. we're gonna take a break here real quick because there's there's other topics I want to get on the show. This is obviously a topic that we're going to be discussing well into the future. This is not going to be the last time we discuss this. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about another social issue, and, and we can tie it back in if we want to. But that is the uh, indictment and arrest of Harvey Weinstein. 
We're going to talk about that when we come back in the future of the Me Too movement. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. politics and you're back with the second hour of the best political talk show you've never heard of this is backroom politics live on blog talk radio joining me as they do every tuesday uh sharma achari admiral ken caradine alan moore and dan lipner 
Uh, real quick, guys, breaking news I want to just touch on, breaking news coming out of Missouri, uh, breaking political news. Dateline Jefferson City, Missouri, according to Politico, uh, embattled Republican Governor uh, Eric Greitens is to make an announcement. It is being uh, reported by Politico that Governor Greitens is, in fact, going to announced his resignation as governor of the great state of Missouri outside of the uh, state capitol there in Jeff City. Uh, In case you don't know, uh, Governor Greitens has been involved in a strange, racketeering, influence-peddling, sex-for-pay type operation. It it, It is a bizarre case, but Again, according to Politico, Governor Eric Greitens, the Republican governor of Missouri, is set to resign, and a statement is being uh, issued in about 10 minutes. We'll keep an eye on that. We'll advise you on further developments. Let's just characterize correctly. <laughs> you were saying sex for pay and so on. He had an affair, this 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 moral Christian values candidate um, had apparently had a long time affair during which time he allegedly took some compromising pictures of this woman while she wasn't even aware of it. She was blindfolded and they were doing some kind of bizarre sex game. And then later he said, if you ever tell any allegedly, if you ever tell anybody about this, I will release these pictures and ruin you. She, he later denied that. And, that he did that. He didn't deny the affair. It, and that's kind of where it stood. But, but the, the, the legislature has condemned him, and many Republican leaders of Missouri have called for him to step down. And apparently, if this is, report's correct, that's, what, that's what's happening. So yeah. another personal yeah. tragedy, but uh, uh, just political disaster for well, it's, uh, it's taken down. It's taken down a bunch of different organizations. There's a secretive group that has been funding his defense. Uh, that lost a major case earlier this afternoon, where all the documents that they have have been that the uh, House Investigations Committee uh, basically have subpoenaed. They're now being forced to turn them over, and Republicans in Missouri are very, very nervous as to what that might uncover. But uh, no, I appreciate clearing that up. But again. Uh, yeah, no problem. Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, Republican. Politico is reporting that Governor Eric Greitens uh, will be resigning here within the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that and update you as that develops. Um, let, let's go to an, another awkward and, and not really pre-situation. That's the situation involving Harvey Weinstein. Uh, for those who have been living under a rock or at, in Mars, uh, if you remember uh, Harvey Weinstein, who at one time was arguably one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, uh, the original founder of Miramax and a, a, a former partner of the Weinstein Group, which has now gone bankrupt, uh, was accused by many women over the course of years uh, to have uh, done everything from inappropriate physical contact to straight-out sexual assault. Uh, there were t- 
two incidents that were brought to the attention of then Manhattan district attorneys. And it was just only recently that the current Manhattan district attorney decided to reopen up the investigation on Harvey Weinstein. Well, last week, Mr. Weinstein was charged and faces charges for these crimes, including uh, sexual assault, um, in a strange turn, uh, Harvey Weinstein appeared in his initial appearance inside a Manhattan courtroom, and his attorney, after entering a plea of not guilty, stands up and says to the judge in live court that, wait a minute, Mr. Mr. Weinstein's innocent. He did not invent the casting couch in Hollywood. Don't know if that argument really helps Mr. Weinstein or not. Uh, but it started off and kicked off a large effort, uh, which includes the hashtag Me Too uh, uh, initiative. Uh, the it, it brought to the attention in Hollywood of equal pay. It really brought women's issues to the forefront, not just in Hollywood, but throughout, uh, and has had a ripple effect. The the bottom line here is now it is there's talk that this now the Me Too movement has now also taken uh, a, another actor and now the latest one that is being accused by a few women is uh, Oscar-winning actor Morgan Freeman. Uh, some have said that that may have gone too far. There's been a couple of instances that say that the, it's gone too far, but. It, it just causes a very uncomfortable dialogue. So we're going to bring that up here is, number one, Sharma, let me start with you. First of all, why did it take so long for the Manhattan DA, because from, from all indications that I've seen in court reports coming out of Manhattan, this was not a hard case to prove. Why did it take so long? Well, I, I disagree with that statement that this is not a hard case to prove, right? A prosecutor's job is to build a case beyond a reasonable doubt so that, you know, they can have a successful prosecution. Um, and, you know, unfortunately with sexual assault cases, they are they are much harder to prosecute because often you'll have a, you know, it's one person's word versus another. There's often, you know, especially if as this much time has passed. There's usually no physical evidence left. It's, it can be very hard to build these cases. And so the prosecutor wants to take the time to make sure that they've got, you know, they've got any physical evidence that is still available, that they've got, you know, that their witnesses are credible, that there's corroboration, um, and that all the elements to build a successful case are in place. And sometimes that takes time. So, and, and I think it was also possible that in this case there was some negotiation going on in the background with Mr. Weinstein's lawyers that the public wasn't privy to. And so I think the answer to that question of why it took so long was it took as long as it needed in order for the prosecutors to feel that they had a credible case to bring in front of a grand jury and to then you know, bring in front of a judge and, and a regular jury in order, to, uh, in order to achieve a conviction. So I'm not... You know, I'm not bothered by the fact that it took a long time between from when these accusations were revealed to when, you know, an arrest happened. I, I, I think that if prosecutors, I would rather that happen and prosecutors do their job thoroughly and bring forward the best case they can than for them to do it in a rush and for, you know, potentially, you know, 
for someone to be acquitted or, you know, let go on a technicality because the prosecutors didn't make sure that their case was sort of airtight enough. And, and, and Sharma, you're, you're a lawyer there in New York City. I mean, there have been several reports that said that, you know, this is an, in, this is a instance of influence peddling uh, where, uh, Mr. Weinstein was a big, powerful entertainment mogul, got a hold of the DA, kind of, you know, maneuvered the case around, and thus it didn't come before even a grand jury and charges were never drawn up. Uh, but, you know, it seems odd to me when all of a sudden it goes from zero to charges of first and third degree rape as well as criminal sexual act in the first degree. Those are some fairly serious charges, and one of the cases goes back to the original 2004 case that sparked this. Uh, does it surprise you that there was that type of influence inside the DA's office to get that to really back down? No, I mean, well, for Cyrus Vance, he could see that, you know, me too giveth and me too taketh away. He was in hot water with, amongst other people, Eric Schneiderman for, you know, for these allegations that he didn't uh, investigate or his office did not investigate um, these allegations thoroughly. There was a, you know, prior to the current charges that are being brought against Mr. Weinstein, um, there was a case in 2015 of the Italian model or, um, who accused him of, gro- of groping her and actually went directly to the police and had him had recordings of him trying to get her to, you know, basically admitting to grabbing her and trying to get her to come into her hotel room. And, you know, the, uh, the, pro- the DA's office declined to prosecute. And so there was, you know, an understandable outcry from, from a lot of people saying, you know, because Weinstein was a popular, uh, was, a, was a popular in the entertainment industry and also a very significant Democratic donor that he was given lenience and the, the DA declined to prosecute for those reasons. Of course, one of the people looking into this was Eric Schneiderman. And then suddenly Eric Schneiderman got, you know, completely uh, wiped out by the Me Too movement as well for his own sort of disgusting practices. And now Cyrus Vance's office had a chance to right kind of the, the wrong that uh, people felt was done to the, you know, that was done back in 2015. So I think that, you know, obviously part of the reason that I think this case was pursued so aggressively, again, it's it's very hard to prosecute sex crimes and especially ones that happened so far away in the past, you know, so far in the past. The incidents in question here, I believe, happened in 2004, which is, you know, a very long time ago. I think I believe there's another incident that happened in 2013 yeah. well, what, that's also part yeah. of these charts, that's also included in these charges. Right, and right. you have to remember, Justin, another reason that this case might not have been prosecuted earlier was because the victim might not have wanted to press charges earlier. Right? In 2004, Harvey Weinstein was at the peak of his power, and the woman that he assaulted could have made the, you know, credible calculation that there is no way I'm going to be taken seriously. Harvey Weinstein has the resources and the influence to completely rip my life apart if they bring these allegations forward, and it might not be worth it for me. Now, the the Harvey Weinstein that exists in 2018 is a very different creature, and perhaps now, because the statute of limitations was not, you know, it has not expired on the crime that was committed against her, now perhaps she felt that she was empowered to speak up, and perhaps she, you know, saved enough evidence or, you know, had was credible enough that the prosecutors believed that they could move forward with her case. So remember, it's, it's not just the, the, the decision to prosecute is not just a political calculation. There's, there's a lot of elements involved, including, most importantly, the victim. Fair enough, fair enough. Dan Lippert, has, has the Me Too movement 
been effective and can the effectiveness continue or was it, I mean, I've, I've heard some critics say it was too much too soon and we're becoming numb to it. Which is it? So the, the statement of too much too soon is inaccurate, or at least in my opinion, is inaccurate. It's, uh, too soon is being the operative part of that. Way too late as far as the, number, the, the kind of stuff that women have had to put up with in professional or even social environments that look the other way and shame on all of us for, and while well, men are, are, are principally to blame, unfortunately they're also women who look the other way on some of these actions. Um, as far as the the too much, this is a different question, and the only b- mild bit that has made me slightly uncomfortable with the Me Too movement is the the conflation of the Harvey Weinstein's for the the for the lack of a better phrase the significantly lesser tasks or events than Harvey Weinstein. What Harvey Weinstein did absolute crimes and should be prosecuted to the level of uh, to forcible sexual assault. Absolutely inexcusable and inexcusable that people did either did not act on things or did not or did not feel as though they were capable or could be acted upon because Harvey Weinstein was too powerful. Shame on all of us for creating that environment. However, there's certain there are complexities to to everything, and my unco- my only uncomfortableness with the Me Too movement, and that might lend a slight credence to your point, uh, your statement, I should say, Justin, is that in the attempt to tr- try and right all wrongs, it's also glossed over some of the complexities of just human interaction, and. That's the only part that troubles me. Not to say everything's right. Let me be clear on that. But there are things that can't. There are legitimate misinterpretations that happen out there. And you cast if the if the net is cast too widely, you catch things that are not right, and that needs to be taken into account of as well. And I that's the only point where I'm slightly wary. So I will I, I will somewhat agree with Dan's point that I think, you know, because hashtag me too has become the sort of catch all phrase for, you know, men behaving badly, there is conflation of people, you know, like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby who committed incredibly serious crimes with more kind of, you know, garden variety perverts. So I think that, you know, in, in that sense, the Me Too movement to especially to its critics can lose a little bit of credibility. But I think it's interesting to think about where the Me Too movement started, right? This didn't start as a way to shame men. It started as a way for women to be able to talk about the experiences they they had. And at first, again, it started anonymously. It started with women saying, you know, you know, as an actress or as a waitress or as a lawyer or as, you know, a member of X profession or as a, you know, a woman in this city or in this, you know, country, I am routinely subject to these, you know, degrading and unwanted experiences. And that that was really the genesis of the Me Too movement. And then it sort of, I think, evolved into then people saying, well, if someone victimized you, you should call them out. 
And that's, I think, what started the ball rolling on, you know, call, actually naming the men and, you know, ger- especially journalists really digging deep to find out who these men were who were repeatedly victimizing people. And I think that's the key here because people, you know, I think, you know, with the Morgan Freeman revelations, people and, you know, to some degree with the Kevin Spacey revelations that happened, you know, several months ago, people were up in arms because he's a beloved figure. He's a great actor. You know, people don't want to think that Morgan Freeman is, is a bad guy. They don't want to think Kevin Spacey is a bad guy. And yet you found out that there, there had been rumors for years that, you know, these gentlemen were abusing their powers in, you know, perhaps not illegal ways, but still ways that we in society should say are unacceptable. And so I think, you know, as this movement evolves and as these stories hopefully become less and less common, you're going to see, I think there is going to be a lot of purging of this, of all these stories to the surface in order for us as a society to now think about, okay, how, what do we learn from this and how can we move forward? And it's going to be painful for the next, I think, few years. But then there's going to be a course correction and hopefully it's going to produce a macro effect of people being more cognizant of their behavior and asking perhaps how they contribute to an environment where, you know, certain groups of people, whether it's, you know, women or whether it's women of color or whether it's just people of color, are feeling like they are marginalized and degraded in, in situations where they shouldn't be. And, and Shella, let me ask you, because um, and, and 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 I don't want this to come across the wrong way. Is Famous last words. With, don't yeah, don't exactly. ask. <laughs> no, no, I, I have to ask the question. You know, from both sides, is you know, is is the Me Too movement sustainable at its current level? Can or, you know, is it effective at its current level, sustainable long term, or does there have to be some sort of reality check that says, okay, you know, we're going after you know everybody who does a cat call. Uh, not that I'm saying that that's right, but you know, we want to focus. You know, do we have to get some focus? Is it sustainable long term, or are we getting? Is there a possibility of saturation? Well, again, you know, this is not. We talk about Me Too like it's an organized movement when it's not. There's no, you know, it's not like Black Lives Matter, for example, that has, you know, it's incorporated and has an office. And, you know, there there are some iterations like, you know, you have Time's Up. Um, you, you have Time's Up, which is, you know, the sort of political or, you know, economic activist arm of, of Me Too, which is, you know, fighting for fighting against harassment and fighting for equal pay. But I think that, you know, the again, the Me Too movement is not this sort of, it didn't start as a organized, cohesive whole. And so it's hard to say, you know, is it time for it to, you know, is it sustainable long-term? Because it's going to evolve. It's going to evolve from perhaps women talking about right now, it's, you know, sexual harassment and abuse and sexual assault. Perhaps it's going to evolve into women speaking more about gender inequality or gender discrimination in the workplace. That's perhaps not tied to, you know, a sexual, um, you know, some sort of sexual motive, but is still, you know, equally as destructive. So I think that you're certainly going to see it shift over time. Whether or not, you know, quote-unquote, it's going to get saturated, I'm not sure 
who, who, who decides that, right? Like, is the marketplace one day going to say, okay, now we're done hearing about women being victims. We're going to move on now. I don't think so. I think that, you know, just like there's no, there's, you know, in the last 200 years, there's been no saturation point for political scandals. I don't think that there's necessarily going to be a saturation point for exposing people who act badly, you know, and whether that's, again, whether that's, um, you know, true crimes, a la Harvey Weinstein, or it's the more sort of, you know, legal but still destructive uh, practices that, you know, people in power engage in. If you look at, you know, Harvey Rose or, or sorry, Charlie, right. Charlie Rose or right. Matt Lauer. Right. I right. don't think that, okay. you know, the market for that information is, is going away anytime soon because it's important. And as long as there are good ethical journalists out there that are willing to, you know, report on these stories, but also make sure that they have the sourcing and the corroboration to back them up, I think that, you know, Hopefully, you'll see less of these stories because people are behaving better, you know, not, not because people are sick of reading about them. Justin? Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Admiral Ken, go ahead. Last word. So you, you touched on something um, when you were trying to describe, you know, the boundaries of, you know, of, 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 uh, of, of how the, the movement should behave. And you talked about, you know, are we going to now start, you know, going after people that do cat calls? You know, I, I – my belief being 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 a husband and and having and having two two daughters one 24 just at the beginning of her career and another one about to start a career in the military is that if if the effect of this will cause um a, a correction in the behavior of young men um and how they uh express their appreciation uh, of of the beauty of of of, uh, of uh, their women coworkers or even the woman walking down the street, if they can, if if this basically causes that behavior to be more appropriate than less appropriate, I'm okay with that. I really am. And and I think you know the 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 thing for me, it's it's pretty easy. Um, just just don't be a jerk, man. Just don't be a jerk. Don't don't treat don't treat don't treat this woman, you know, or these women any you know uh, like like you have no respect for them. It, it's just about respect. That's all it is. Right. Right. All right. We're gonna let that be. The no, Justin, floor. wait, wait. I didn't get a chance. Okay, Alan Moore. <laughs> I'll try to be brief. I'm so sort of it's sort of a question of of where's Me Too going, and and I think that Me Too has a few good years of doing exactly what it's currently doing, which is calling out grotesque sexual assault in, uh, we've seen it with high visibility people, famous people. Um, it, it, it's going to creep into politics further and it's going to creep into the, to the workplace. And I think that, that that's all a good thing. We shouldn't just punish the, the Charlie Roses and Matt Lowers and Harvey Weinstein's for that matter. Um, uh, but we should, but but there are plenty of other uh, uh, true sinners out there, true true abusers out there, who who need to be called out. And whether the Me Too movement eventually will morph into broader set of issues, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Right now, it's all about about um, men treating women sexually abusively, and and uh, making them very uncomfortable, harassing them because of their gender. Um, and uh, and we, we've got a lot of work uh, uh, to do in that regard. So I think Me Too is around okay. for a while. At the same time, as Dan said, and I think Charmley agreed, 
we 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 we, we got to be careful not to do terrible collateral damage to people who whose sins pale in comparison to some of, of these worst cases. We talked quite a bit about Al Franken back months ago when he was forced to to step down from the Senate by women rising up. And, and, and some of us thought then and still think that maybe that was an overreaction to the, the nature of, of, of his sins. So, but, but you know what, as, as Ken points out, men, you brought this on yourselves, clean up your act and be prepared uh, to, to act better. And in the meantime, those of you who have not acted well in, in recent months or more to the point years, watch out because the, the right. spotlight may turn okay. on you. Right. All right. We're going to let that be the last word. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a potentially humanitarian crisis developing on the southern border of the United States with Mexico. And the, the, the federal government has to explain how they lost 1,500 children. That's when we come back on Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live on Blog Talk Radio. Again, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back here for the final segment in the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio, joining me as they do every Tuesday. Sharma Chari, Admiral Ken Carradine, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner, Esquire. And, of course, running the boards as she does in a non-disclosed location in Cape Cod, Audrey Howerton, our associate producer. Hey, I want to talk real quickly, and, and I know it's going to be something that we're going to be talking about here in the next couple of weeks, but I wanted to at least kick off and bring to the attention what I think is a disturbing situation on our southern border. Um, According to uh, several sources, there are reports coming out of U.S. federal authorities that uh, several departments, including the one charged in custody of the Department of Health and Human Services, cannot locate just under 1,500 children. In fact, they can't find 1,475 children that have been detained by border security enforcement officials and placed without their parents into HHS custody and into ultimately the custody of several other supporting organizations. Uh, it is something that does not seem to be getting better. And the Associated Press, uh, who uh, broke this story last week, is also reporting that when the survey was conducted of children who had crossed into the U.S. Uh, unaccompanied or accompanied by adults and they were placed with, quote-unquote, adult sponsors, some of these children may have actually been put into the hands of not adult sponsors, but human traffickers, uh, which means that there's a vetting problem. It's it's a very disturbing situation that's going on. Senator Rob Portman, the Republican senator from Ohio, says um, these kids, regardless of their immigration status, deserve to be treated properly, not abused or trafficked. This is all about accountability. Uh, it, it, it seems to be in defiance of the attorney general who's saying, look, we're going to separate the kids, and you know, you shouldn't cross into the U.S. illegally, the hardcore stance of the attorney general and the Justice Department on this situation. Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. This this seems like a no-win situation for the administration, and in particular, uh, DOJ and HHS. Is, is there any way that there's a positive spin that can be put on what's coming out of the administration on this subject? Well, <laughs> there's a difference between, if you will, a positive spin and an accurate spin. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a this is a messy situation. It's not as bad as it looks, but it's a mess. The law says, and this is not, and this is what, what prompted somebody to plant the president's notion that he could say, hey, this is the Democrat policy. Don't blame me. Um, the law says, and this goes back a ways, that if you come across seeking attention seeking of the authority, sometimes you offer yourself up. Um, and are seeking political asylum or just refuge, if you will, that uh, on, on some occasions, given what the, the border people know or don't know 
a person is 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 held in some kind of a of a of a facility and under federal law you can't take children into uh into prisons and jails so the moment you decide you're going to take an adult into custody you have to find something to do with the children this is not new to this administration um i i mean i i was horrified when i first read this but i thought eh, something doesn't add up and that's the only reason i know what i'm now sharing um yeah apparently in 20 in 2016 there was a there was a fairly serious audit done of uh of something over 4000 children and there were over 1000 that they that they couldn't locate they weren't freaked about that because most of the time, it, depending on the age of the child and so on, and, and it's a different standard if it's a two-year-old or a 15-year-old, um, uh, very often the, the child is placed with family or friends, um, uh, known people who, who are vetted. There is a vetting process. Now, obviously, there's some cases where, where something horrible happens and the vetting process breaks down. That's right. been going on for years. What, what's happened in this administration is they've beefed it up and are, and are taking or uh, are, are arresting more asylum seekers, separating more children. But I, it's not like it was 10 before and it's thousands now. It was a lot before and yeah. it's even more now. When they went looking this particular time, and HHS uh, has, has commented on this in the last 24 hours, it's, hey, we didn't say they were lost. We did a quick survey, and we didn't get responses on about 1,500. That doesn't mean they're lost. It doesn't mean we know where they are. It doesn't mean they're found, but don't jump to the conclusion. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm just saying that, that there's some facts here that, that need to be understood, even as we try to figure out what's the humane, um, decent, moral thing to do those are words that we don't often associate with this with this white house um uh, but and, and there have been comments you, from from john from john kelly when he ran dhs that hey we want to discourage people from coming we don't want to be warm embracing and welcoming we want to make people think twice before coming over here so as somebody who's worked with so the the the, the organization that that's in the crosshairs of the focus of this is a division inside the Department of Health and Human Services called the Office of Refugee Resettlement. I've worked with them on many yep. migrant interdictions that I've been involved with. Uh, what they do is they intake them, they hold them in foster care type situations uh, on large-scale migrant operations like what we see uh, in like the Cuban or the Haitian crisis back in the 90s. We would take them, you know, separate them from their families, but put them into a dormitory and process them. And they would largely go to organizations, Christian-based, faith-based organizations, community organizations. But the vetting on that was never that big of a deal. But it brings up a bigger argument, though. And, uh, Dan Levner, let me go to you. Is 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 this an appropriate measure for crossing the border without undocumented, and I'll go, I'll say, you know, illegally crossing the border is taking the kids away 
a humane incentive to either deal with the situation or prevent the situation from happening. The entirety of the situation is hidden humane. The separating families thus under that heading is also inhumane. That said, it doesn't seem like we're fully equipped to know how to deal with this in spite of uh, all the examples given by both you and Alan. It always feels like a hodgepodge thing that's thrown together. So I don't know what the... What? I can tell you that right now. It is it is a it is a terribly un, underfunded organization, ORR. It is a it is a a a mismanaged operation uh, that doesn't put a lot of time and effort into vetting the organizations that are taking custody of these kids. It, it, it's you're right. It's a mess. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going, Dan. No, so, but the problem is we, and this is like many things somehow in this country and how we choose to handle things that we thought we find icky. So therefore we make it, we just do it, but we do it ugly. It's not good, but unless we choose to say, but fine, like this thing is happening and in order to respond to it properly, it's going to take well-funded, even well-funded actions by organizations that know what they're doing. And even if we're talking about folks that we do not want to become permanent residents in this country, it still takes money to properly handle it in a humane fashion. It's that simple. But we don't do that. Admiral Ken, you know, we we used to hear about George W. Bush and the compassionate conservative. Uh, This wasn't something that George the Bush the George W. Bush 43 administration would undertake, particularly when you talk about family values, trying to keep the family unit together. One, it's easier to account for a unit that is an entire family without having to separate the kids. But when you hear Jeff Sessions say, if, quote, if you don't want your kids separated, then don't bring them across the border illegally. It's not our fault that somebody does that. Uh, where's the compassion in that, Admiral Ken? Uh, I... I don't recognize this party, man. Um, this is not this is not um, this is not the Republican Party that I that I defended being a part of for most of my adult life. There's no compassion in that. Um, and I think you know you know one of the things that we say in our family, a little bit of empathy goes a long way. Um, I think that if it were possible for any of the folks that are making these policies to express any empathy, they would not be indulging in the, in this kind of behavior. Um, that said, um, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to, to get border security. Uh, I think that we've been hearing about and seeing the wrong way for the better part of almost two years now. Uh, I think if we are expecting there to be any major change uh, for whatever reason, public outcry, um, a change of heart, I think we're fooling ourselves. This is not who these people are, and this is not what's going to happen. I think um, um, uh, the, the only good thing about this is that in the last week or so, I haven't heard anybody talk about that, that, that effing wall that, that, uh, Vice, that President Fox from Mexico uh, used to call it. I haven't heard anybody, anybody talking about that, but give them time. I'm sure it'll be back. <laughs> Alan Moore, 
Just you know, remember, just remember, the Trump administration did not start this policy. This is not Trump administration law. They they increased, they increased and tightened the enforcement. But that's why I said that this the 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 audit I talked about was 2016. <laughs> that was before Trump was elected president, and there were thousands of kids who had been separated, and there was a problem in accounting for all of them. Now, that's not a defense. I'm just trying to add some perspective to the fact that policy, for all I know and I don't know, it started before George W. Bush. Now, how you enforce these laws, it matters. And and that's where, you know, the, the, the injection of compassion comes into it. But when you separate parents from kids for whatever reason, there's, there's uh, uh, a, an enormous moral challenge uh, uh, associated with that. You'd like at least people to be thinking about it and agonizing over it and not simply saying, okay, now you know, don't bring them, because if you do, we're going to separate and don't come in the first place. There, there's, a, there's, there, there's a middle no. ground, but it's not, a brand, it's not all Trump. It's not brand new. No, no, and 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 also to, in, in in defense of HHS on one aspect, uh, number one, uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, again, which takes custody of the unaccompanied or separated children, um, basically have said that the claims of the children being lost are misleading. Uh, Eric Hagan, who is the HHS Deputy Secretary, said that the children were not lost rather than, quote, the sponsors simply have not responded to follow-up calls from our office uh, and, that, and that the department is looking into it. It should also be stated that the agency, uh, under its enabling legislation, is under no obligation to make follow-up calls once they are placed into foster care, but it seems like good best practices to follow up. But again, there is no legal obligation to do that. So let, let me add a word like, about the office of refugee uh, office of refugee resettlement. Cause I took a pr- pretty heavy beating here a few minutes ago. Uh, I've known some of those for a long time. I've got a long association with an organization the, called the international rescue committee that resettles true refugees into America every day uh, for, for 50 years. And one of the partners is the Office of Refugee Resettlement. That was why it was created, to help true refugees who typically come in from overseas. Very often, these are people who helped America in some issue, whether in the old days it was Vietnam and then in, in more recent times, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, uh, as well as other desperate people who go through a very serious vetting process they come and they get a head start, some, a helping hand from both the State Department and from the Office of Refugee Resettlement at HHS. And they, they are not heavily staffed, but they do, in my judgment, an excellent job. This business of the stuff at the border was something I wasn't even aware that they had a responsibility for. I'm not defending their behavior there. I'm not prepared to trash it because I don't know enough. Yeah, well, they've they've had they've had this, you know. Again, Alan, this is a mission that they've had for the better part of at least I dealt with them back in the mid '90s, late '90s, during the Cuban and Haitian boat lifts. 
it was it was an organization that was poorly managed and underfunded back then, and and it appears not much has changed. Uh, well, I just I'm, disagree I'm not, with that. I, I completely I, disagree with you, Justin, and I don't think oh, you have okay. a, by going back and talking about a hundred thousand Cubans who came to America and were held in a in a in an army camp down in Arkansas. The the, the that, nobody that, that, in the system was prepared Alan, to deal Alan, with those not, kinds Alan, of numbers. Alan, that, Alan, that's not true. That's not true. That is absolutely not. What's true. not true? What, 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 what's you, not true? You know, a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. First of all, saying a hundred thousand Cubans in a camp in Arkansas is absolutely categorically not true. We, you it know, was if, Mar- if, the Mario boat lift. I think there was like ninety thousand, and I think it was Fort Hood, but I can't remember. Maybe it was, no, it was no, a Fort no, no, in, no, no, in, in no, Arkansas. No, anyway, no, well, no, all, all no, I'm saying no. is you can't say that because they were overcome and overwhelmed. <laughs> then that, no, they, that Alan, they've been a Alan, complete and total failure Alan, ever I've since. Been, you, Alan, it's a I've false equivalency, with, Justin. It's not a false equivalency, Alan. Alan, I've been dealing with border security issues for the better part of three decades. I know ORR, and I'm not saying that they're bad people. What I've said is that they've been poorly managed. They've been poorly drastically underfunded, and this is the humanitarian crisis now that has come to the attention of a situation that needs to be rectified. I'm not condemning these guys to hell, but what I am saying is that this brings to the attention of we need to seriously take a look at how we are approaching the enforcement of border security laws. As somebody who's been involved in that for the better part of almost three decades, I am telling you it is something that is a hodgepodge of policies, there's no consistent enforcement that goes on with this. And on top of that, it puts the kids in a bad situation. Whether it's the 94, 96, or 98 boat lifts, or whether it's one boat lift or 100,000, whether it's 10 or 100 migrants that are coming over the border at any sector between El Paso and the Pacific Coast or Brownsville and the Pacific Coast, these kids still deserve to be treated in a humane manner and not just drop and unaccounted for. There needs to be a better process. Not, it's traumatic enough that they're separated from their families. As somebody, and, and as you have, as somebody who's seen what happens when you take a kid and put them into the arms of a stranger and they're separated from their parents, that's never something you want to see. But what I will say is, we have a responsibility as a major world power to take a better accountability and a better process and a better way of handling this instead of this, you know, the claim of, well, we, we don't have to follow up. Maybe we should have to follow up. Maybe we should fund them and get them funding so they can do their job properly. That's the problem. I have no, disagree- I have no disagreement with the with- – the duty we have to make sure that these kids are properly cared for and that we don't and that, and that we don't lose track of them. All I'm saying is, a, I'm not laying it all at the feet of, of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, whose primary job is not that. What a and and b, we don't have all the information we need here. The numbers are kind of horrifying, but there's a lot of missing pieces that we don't have, and we're just trashing ORR in the process. Oh, and I think I think once in a while I think. ORR, not so much trashing, but a nice kick in the rear end 
to at least bring this. ORR has gone under the radar for so long. They do good work. I'm not saying that they don't, Alan, but what I am saying is, is that the administration is going to put the mission on them, which they have. If they're going to put this mission on him, then we, we as humane Western civilized human beings have a responsibility to deal with it in a Western humane and civilized manner. Not just dropping them, and for, it's not just a drive-through, drop and go. They're not returning videotapes to Blockbuster. This is a serious humanitarian crisis that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. Anyway, that being said, we're coming up on the end of the show, um, th- th- and this is something that I will talk about in the future, absolutely, because I want—I think this is a disturbing thing for our country. But that being said, on behalf, oh wait a minute. Uh, Audrey, I have to mention one thing. Audrey, come on the line if you can. Uh, Audrey Howerton, our associate producer at our uh, undisclosed location in Cape Cod. Uh, Audrey, first of all, how are you? I'm doing well. Audrey? How are you? Very good. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Good <laughs> show. Um, so I was told the other day that using the term Deadpool was kind of insensitive and that we should not use that term anymore. So we are now calling it the parachute pool. Whoever pulls the parachute, whoever pulls their power, their parachute and did, bails out of the did, administration. Did some, did some dead person complain? I'm just curious. <laughs> I was told it was insensitive by a listener. So with that in mind, I am going to actually, was he dead? I'm going to call it from, huh? No, he was very. She was very much alive. He was very much alive. So we are now going to call it the parachute pool. Now that being said, uh, if you would, Audrey, go over our picks from last week for the parachute pool. Okay, so for the parachute pool, Asharma picked John Bolton. Ken, you had Rudy Giuliani. Dan, you had Rick Perry. Alan, for the fourth week in a row, you have Scott Pruitt. And Justin, you had Bob Bronstein. And fortunately or unfortunately, all of those people still have a job. Okay. So, that being said, the parachute pool continues. You have the option of carrying over your pick or picking somebody new. This week we're going to start, uh, we'll give ladies preference. Sharmila, your pick first. Oh, thank you. Wait, does it still count if they get pushed out of the airplane? Or do they have to quit themselves? <laughs> no, no, no. It should be either or. Either or. They survive either way. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope. Either or. Huh. Um, I will change mine to Wilbur Ross, based on today's political article. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. Dan Lipner, you. Just because I want it to be true, Stephen Miller. Uh. <laughs> oh, wow. We are going outside the box. Uh, Alan Moore. You know, it's hard to give up Pruitt. He's just such a right target. But I'm tired of being disappointed week after week. So I'm, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a little switch over to John Kelly for a week. Really? Interesting. After today's after today's uh, disclosures, I'm surprised by that. Uh, 
uh, Admiral Ken? Well, before I answer, I just want to say that uh, I once thought about parachuting out of an airplane, and I've been in counseling about it ever since. Uh, I'm I'm real sensitive (laughs) to the use of the the parachute pull thing, so uh, I hope we can find an adequate description that that, that, that that doesn't offend my sensibilities near as much. Uh, That said... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Admiral Ken. I'll go with John Kelly. I mean, what the hell? You're gonna go chunky? You no, know, it's already been picked. You gotta it's pick John. Oh, okay, Scott Pruitt. Oh, took him. Oh, Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt. Oh, you're gonna take Scott okay. Rowe. Little flip flop there. Okay, yeah. very good. Uh, I am. I'm gonna stick with Rod Rosenstein. I think he's gonna get fired before it's all mm. said and done. That's my pick. Uh, that being said, okay, uh, that. Being said, on behalf of Alan Moore, Sharm Lothari, Admiral Ken, uh, yeah, Dan Lipner, excuse me, trying not to sneeze, and our associate producer, Audrey Harrington, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This has been Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. You can follow us at our website, www.backroompolitics.org, where you can subscribe to the From the Cutting Room Floor, our daily recap of all things political that happens. You can subscribe to that and get the RSS feed, daily updates on that. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can check us out on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Backroom Politics Radio. Or you can email us at info at backroompolitics.org for all of your fan mail, gripes, complaints, and just general love. Folks, have a great week, America. And remember, Some gave all, but keep them in your minds even after Memorial Day. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.